This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report podcast with me, Norman Swan, and Tegan Taylor, who will be with us later. Today, most of the focus recently has been on COVID vaccines, but what's the latest on treatments? Because if the vaccines don't work as well as hoped, they'll be the backstop. Just how often do you really need to go back to see your dentist for a checkup? Six months? Two years? Find out later. How decisions about the treatment of prostate cancer may be better if you're a public patient. And Australia's world-famous cochlear implant is changing. If you can cast your mind back to the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic, all the talk was about treatments, with President Trump asking questions about oral bleach and strongly promoting hydroxychloroquine, which is now known not to work. But things have moved on. We now know that certain anti-HIV drugs don't work either and that the antiviral remdesivir is disappointing and convalescent serum, that's where they got emergency use authorization in the United States, where you take the blood of people who've recovered from COVID-19, spin down the serum that contains the antibodies and give it to somebody with the infection, it doesn't seem to work either. But there are other reports that monoclonal antibodies might work, that blocking the receptor for the virus might be promising, and returning to one of our earlier reports that the anti-parasitic medication ivermectin, we find out that that has not yet fallen out of the race. David Jans is Professor of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology at Monash University, and his group was studying ivermectin long before SARS-CoV-2 came along. Welcome to the Health Report, David. Uh, nice to be here, Norman. Hello. Now, it was your, it was your colleague that uh, did the work on the ivermectin we had on the program, and that was in the lab. Just remind us what you found in the lab there with ivermectin. So we, we've worked on ivermectin for over 10 years in the lab, and we had worked out what we thought was the mechanism. And I can talk a little bit about that later if you like. But uh, what we did when the COVID-19 uh, epidemic started was immediately think, I think both of us simultaneously but independently, uh, so my colleague Kylie Wagstaff and myself thought that ivermectin could work and should work. So, this is because, on, so the work you've been on the previous 10 years was into other microorganisms, not just parasites. You'd looked into other viruses and so on and found some effect again, it, yeah. again in the lab. Exactly. So we'd worked on ivermectin for more than 10 years on basically other viruses, um, dengue, Zika, and so on. And anyway, we both thought it's going to work for, for uh, COVID-19. And so we did the test uh, in cell culture and it, it came up uh, as we expected. And, and so that's where, <laughs> that's where we are. And or that's where we were then. And it's jumped to human studies, but has there been any animal evidence, so-called preclinical evidence, that ivermectin can work? So the, the, there have, have been some studies about ivermectin, but certainly not for so in animals, but not for uh, COVID-19. So ivermectin is known to be completely safe, basically, after four, more than 40 years of use in humans, um, you know, one bad interaction in a million. And so I think people... And this is used in the treatment of river blindness in Africa in particular. It, uh, so uh, actually for various roundworm infections, so a whole host of them actually. Um, and so the uh, it, it, people just basically read our paper and I think jumped straight to humans as I think uh, a pandemic probably pandemic probably warrants. And so by my account now, I think it's something like 68 uh, random, randomized clinical trials running for ivermectin. 
um, and a whole bunch of other what I would call observational studies. And so, yes. So it's, so it's running the risk of going the hydrochloroquine way, which is lots of tiny little studies that are not very well designed where you don't really quite get an answer. So when you look at a spread, I mean, how many high-quality studies are actually being done into ivermectin? I, I would like to think that a number of the 68 are high-quality studies. Um, and I should add that we ourselves are uh, have been sort of working in the last six months uh, as hard as we can to get to the point of doing a clinical trial ourselves. Uh, so I would agree. I think the sort of plethora of different studies that, as you say, are not very well designed is a problem. But I think some of the studies have been quite well designed and I think the results are starting to come out. Um, Showing and, what? And so they show two things, I think. Number one, they show that uh, ivermectin is safe. So as I, as I said before, ivermectin has this amazing uh, safety record after 40 years of use or over 40 years of use. However, it wasn't clear to me that necessarily ivermectin plus COVID-19 would be a good combination. And so I was a bit scared about, uh, you know, uh, sort of adverse reactions and so on. Not a single report that I've seen in any of the studies well, or well, in that, any other That's study. comforting, but safety. But what about effectiveness? Because it's been used in two ways. One is early treatment to sort of prevent yeah. going on to COVID-19 and the others is a treatment for COVID-19, which is the disease caused by SARS-CoV-2. Exactly. What, what's the evidence showing? So I think the evidence is positive for both. And obviously we're dependent on then the release of studies uh, that are either random clinical, randomized clinical trials or uh, peer-reviewed publications. And so, in, just in, and so there are a number, there's probably six or seven now that I think are looking very positive uh, in terms of prophylaxis, prophylaxis so protect you you would take uh, ivermectin to protect you against impending infection because you're in a risk group so a study in Egypt showed that uh, two doses of ivermectin were enough to protect most so 93% of uh, patients who uh, didn't have symptoms but were close family contacts of a COVID-positive patient. And was that a randomised study? It was a randomised study, and in the control subjects, 58% got symptoms. Now, just get down, so, so you're, you're getting positive signals, but we got positive signals out of hydroxychloroquine, but when they did large studies, like the recovery trial in Britain, which is thousands of patients in real life in the, in the wards in Britain, you know, hydroxychloroquine fell over and it's fallen over in large clinical trials. So you often get a signal. It's like vitamin D in fish oil, small, poorly conducted trials. You get positive effects of vitamin D in fish oil and then you get larger and larger trials. They fall over. Uh, I mean, how, how much can we bet on this? <laughs> I'm not a betting man. Um, I, 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 I think there really is little point in... Uh, presuming it's not going to work until you've shown that it doesn't work. And I think, unfortunately, um, there are a lot of people who keep saying there's no evidence, there's no evidence. I think there is actually a lot of evidence to suggest, yes, you should do the big trial. And I think all of the positive results that, so positive results such as the one I just talked about, they are actually much, much better than any sort of preliminary or small study uh, uh, result for, I think, hydroxychloroquine or remdesivir or anything else that I've seen. And unfortunately, with the second wave in Europe, um, they might get a chance to test it. 
So, so there are random randomized clinical trials in Europe, in Spain, uh, in France, and so on. So, um, I think we're all just waiting for them to start release, start to release their results. And when they do, I, we'll know one way or another, of course. But I think, you know, as you say, the big study is what you need to do. But in the meantime, there's lots of people in hospital that actually need a solution. So, I think you have to navigate you know, the, the extreme urgency of the situation, uh, you know, the right way. And at some point, I think, you know, uh, y you can talk about randomised clinical trials forever. Um, when do you have enough? Well, you never do, I suppose. David, we'll follow this up with interest. Thanks for joining us. No problem. Thank you, Norman. David. Bye. David Jans is Professor of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology at Monash University in Melbourne. And you're listening to RN's Health Report. I'm Norman Swan. Remember, we love getting your questions and comments. Send them into healthreport at abc.net.au. And if you want to wear Tegan is, she'll be along shortly. In today's Medical Journal of Australia, there's a study of nearly 30,000 men diagnosed with prostate cancer over 60 years, six, six, six years, I should say, to see how or whether their treatment varied when they had the more controversial stage of the disease, when it's early and localised in the prostate gland. That's when surveillance, watching and waiting can avoid unnecessary treatment, but it's also where radiation therapy can be just as curative, probably with fewer side effects, such as incontinence and impotence. The findings were that how you got treated varied according to whether you were a public patient or a private one. Associate Professor Ian Haynes is a medical oncologist at Monash University and the Cabrini and led the study. Welcome to the Health Report, Ian. Thanks very much, Nolan. How did you do the study? Uh, well, it was just a retrospective look. In Norman, we decided that with the increased use of PSA and increased diagnosis of prostate cancer and the increasing concern recently that some cancers are over-treated, that we would look back at the, uh, all the diagnoses. We had it registered with um, Cancer Victoria uh, over the previous six years and then linked those through the Victorian link data linkage with all the admitted episodes in Victoria that accounted for all treatments given. So we looked at all biopsies within three months of the registration of the diagnosis to work out whether they were done in private and more public. And then we looked and we matched treatment over the 12 months after the diagnosis to see how patients were treated. And were you able to measure surveillance? In other words, people who didn't get treatment at all and who, were watch, who got watchful waiting? Only by supposition, really. We found that um, a certain percentage had radiation therapy initially, a certain percentage had um, radical prostatectomy plus or minus radiation, and the presumption would be that uh, a lot of the other men would be managed by watchful waiting or active surveillance. And so you were able to classify this according to a man's age and also how far, even though they were all localised in the prostate gland, they can have different layers of levels of severity. You were able to adjust for all that? Well, we certainly adjusted for age. We adjusted for comorbidities and we adjusted for the grade of the tumour. Um, which is done under the microscope. Unfortunately, we weren't able to adjust for the T cell or the size of the cancer, and we weren't able to adjust for uh, the other variable with the cancer that is important, in, which is the PSA. But we were able to come up with the grade group and put people in five different groups according to so the what, recent... what did you find? Uh, we found that men treated in private in Victoria in that six-year period were treated more regularly with radical prostatectomy than those treated in the public system, and those in the public system 
were more likely to be treated with radiation therapy. And, and we, that's when correcting for age and correcting for comorbidities. How do you, well, first of all, the, the first question to ask is, of course, does that have any impact on cure rates? I mean, the evidence would suggest not. They're equally effective at cure, both radiation, yeah. external beam radiation and, and radical prostatectomy. Yes, that's right. We weren't sure what we'd find. We, we expected the two groups to uh, be equal. So um, we don't have any outcomes data. There is a, a prostate cancer outcomes registry in Victoria, which is looking at outcomes, but that doesn't capture all patients with prostate cancer. Unfortunately, we weren't able to look at outcomes in this particular retrospective study, but we'd like to do that in future. I think there is a place for um, trying to do that for this large group of men that we identified. No. This is not a, a, a new observation. I mean, people have suspected this before that um, you're more likely to get radiation therapy. I mean, one one of the arguments from the radiation oncologists is that they, too few men get a second opinion from a radiation oncologist. So the GP automatically refers you to see a urological surgeon. And what urological yes. surgeons know how to do is remove prostates. They don't actually yes. know how to do radiation. Well, that's not true, actually. They, do, they put in radiation seeds. But nonetheless, I'm, I'm sweeping generalisation, but you, you know what I'm saying. Yes, uh, yes. Whereas in the hospital, you go in, you get a multidisciplinary team and radiation therapy is free. Um, and it's, there's no waiting list for it either. Um, mm. And with a, the chance of fewer side effects that might matter to some men, which is impotence and, uh, and incontinence. Is this about team therapy where it's a team making the decision in a, in a public hospital rather than in a private hospital? Although Cabrini does have, you're a hospital, you're at, does have multidisciplinary teams. Oh, we do. Yeah, we've got a very um, committed and very highly competent and collaborative multidisciplinary teams, particularly in urology. So the, the decision-making... But, but I bet you that the private patients in the Cabrini are getting radicals, radical prostatectomies and not re, uh, outnumbering radiation, aren't they? Well, they. I suspect that the numbers there would be similar to this. Um, because the um, urologist is the gatekeeper. It's a one-on-one -on -one relationship with the patient, and so they are responsible for the outcomes. It's a big decision for them to pursue active surveillance, although a lot do now um, after multidisciplinary team meetings. But, it's I mean, they carry that on their shoulders, I suppose. I suppose in the public system it's borne by the whole team. But multidisciplinary meetings are the standard of treatment now around Australia. And just to explain to people, what we're talking about here is the, you go and so one of the first questions you should ask your GP when they're referring you is, are you referring me to a team or an individual? Because you get better outcomes if it's a team of people, a radiation oncologist, surgeon, pathologist, psychologist even, and others. Yes, that's right. So, uh, so but I mean, the, the, the urologist is still the gatekeeper in Australia in the private system, in the public system. I don't know. It's probably more... Um, evolved as a team approach, but certainly that's starting to happen much more in private, isn't it, where I work. I mean, I've spoken to urologists who say, you know, I don't, I'd rather die than refer my patient to a radiation oncologist. You know, it's, I, I, know what, I know the results I get from, you know, and it's not about money, it's about they, they think that what they do is safer and has fewer side effects. And if you talk to a radiation oncologist, they complain about the surgeons behind the back saying, you know, there are going to be 90% impotence here and I know that I get better results from my radiation oncology. Is this just two professions that don't talk to each other that much and the, the poor patient doesn't get the choice? I think in some cases that's correct, Norman. I think, um, well, certainly what in private you have much more access to um, surgery with the robot, which is um, claimed to have less side effects. And I think which that's is not, tr which is not true. 
<laughs> That's right. Well, in certain hands they would claim it, but the radiation therapists claim their treatment is better. They claim if they had the cancer, they would have radiation so, therapy and the surgeons yeah. would go. So, they- so, so the bottom line here is that if you're a man with prostate cancer, ask for a second opinion. Absolutely. The bottom line is, um, yes, you want to be discussed in a multidisciplinary meeting and you'd like to have an individual discussion with a radiation therapist. And once you've done that, you can make an informed choice. So that's what I'd urge your men to do. Ian, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you. Associate Professor Ian Haynes is a medical oncologist at Monash University and the Cabrini Hospital, and he's lost all his friends in both radiation oncology and surgery. If you have a dentist, she probably sends you to a six-monthly recall to come in for a checkup, and you no doubt feel guilty if you don't go. The question is whether there's any evidence that the checkup does your teeth or mouth any good compared to seeing her less frequently. That's what a group of researchers have tried to find out by reviewing studies which have asked just that. Dr. Patrick Fee is a dental researcher at the University of Dundee in Scotland and was the lead author on the paper. I spoke to him earlier. Pleased to be with you. Thanks for the invite, Norman. Before we get to the research, what constitutes a dental checkup in terms of good practice, good dental practice? How often to see our patients is perhaps the most commonly made decision by dentists and many adults around the world. We'll be used to going to see the dentist on a six-monthly basis. The rationale behind a a checkup being to detect early signs and symptoms of dental disease, whether that be decay, gum disease, as well as an examination of the soft tissues of the mouth. Traditionally, this is a a checkup based on a scheduled six-month checkup, irrespective of an individual's actual likely risk of developing disease. And are x-rays part of that? They seem to be, in Australia, they seem to do a lot of x-rays. So certainly x-rays are one of the diagnostic tools that dentists have. An examination will always be a visual examination of the teeth and soft tissues, first of all, with x-rays then indicated to detect early signs of decay, generally between the teeth. That's difficult to assess just with a visual checkup and can spot signs of disease around the end of teeth or the bone levels around teeth that we can't assess just by looking at the teeth. So x-rays certainly can help supplement. But the main purpose is to detect and prevent tooth decay. Correct. It's it's a dual function by detecting early signs of disease and also providing preventive advice to patients, whether that be on improving their sort of self-performed cleaning, giving dietary advice or other smoking cessation advice where appropriate. Now, the purpose of this particular review, as I said earlier, was what are the recall interviews? How often should you come? What the evidence is for that benefit? What did you find? This research is a a Cochrane review which pulls together all the best available scientific evidence. There's been a call for research in this specific area for several decades now because any guidance for dentists on how often to see patients for checkups has been based on weak scientific evidence. That is really until now. We looked for all randomised clinical trials that allocated patients to different checkup frequency and we searched for, for studies that were conducted in the general dental practice setting and in regular dental attenders so that the results would be most relevant to practising dentists. And the results of this review really question whether a universal six-month checkup is the best frequency because we, we considered patients who were attending at different checkup frequencies to so those who were attending every six months, some who were attending every two years for a checkup, and some who were attending based on their likely risk of developing disease, so sort of what we know as a, a personalised risk-based checkup. And we found that after four years, those attending on any of these checkup frequencies had similar oral health after four years of follow-up. 
was any sense of regularity worth it or was it simply the best outcome was from people who say, look, you're, you've got a heap of dental decay there. I'm going to have to see you fairly frequently till we get this in order or something like that. Or you've got heart disease and you wouldn't want your gums to go wrong. We need to check you up on a regular basis, something like that. What was the story there? Essentially, we examined all of the group of patients on a broad range of outcome measures. So we looked at dental decay, gum health, gum disease, patient well-being, patient satisfaction with their checkup frequency. Between our groups of six-month checkup, two-year checkup, and personalised risk-based checkup, we found no differences across any of our outcome measures. So I suppose the findings are not that no one should attend for dental checkups on a six-monthly basis. There will be some patients, as you say, who are at high risk of decay or gum disease where a six-monthly or even a three-monthly checkup will be appropriate. But it's this sort of this universal six-monthly checkup for everyone that doesn't seem appropriate when the oral health of patients seen at intervals based on their risk so, or low-risk patients seen every two years are, have similar oral health at four years. So let's assume you're living in an area with fluoridated water, you've got very little dental decay, you've very few fillings in your mouth. Is any kind of regular checkup worth it if you've got a good mouth? Yeah, so I mean, essentially what we've seen here is we've seen a group of patients at low risk of dental decay and gum disease who were attending the dentist every two years. Their oral health was very similar to those who were seen either every six months or risk-based. So we have low-risk patients who, attending every every two years, had oral health that was similar to those who, who attend every six months. There is a, a positive message here that the results appear to show that dentists can accurately assess individual patients' risk of developing dental disease and allocate them to an appropriate checkup frequency. So what are the questions your dentist should be asking you in order to make that risk-based decision? So we know a number of risk factors that are associated with oral disease. We know that self-performed cleaning to remove plaque improves oral health. We know that, as you say, exposure to fluoride reduces decay either through fluoridated water or fluoridated toothpaste. Dietary habits are related to oral disease, so particularly the frequency of intake of, of sugary foods, smoking and alcohol, and a patient's general health, particularly medication they're on or conditions that may affect the quality or quantity of saliva, which helps to protect our teeth from decay. And in these COVID-19 times, what are the implications here? I mean, absolutely. I think there's a, r a really positive message here that in terms of current times, the research is valuable when considering the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. We know that dental practices were closed. Patient access for dental treatment has been limited and access to dental care might remain limited for some time. The results of this review provide reassurance, really, that intervals between checkups can be extended beyond six months without detriment to oral health. Patrick, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Norman. So, yeah, relief. You can go a little bit less frequently unless you've got a risk factor. Patrick Fee is a dentist and a dental researcher at the University of Dundee in Scotland. Now, cochlear implants are so widespread, they're easy to take them for granted, but a life-changing tool they are for people with profound hearing. But they're not perfect, don't always perform well in noisy areas, and Tegan Taylor has been investigating. Hi, Tegan. Hi, Norman. So tell me, the, give me the background to the story. 
Right. So like you say, cochlear implants are really good at helping people to understand speech. They, if you were listening to me and you talking right now, if you had cochlear implants, hopefully it sounds pretty clear to you. But they're a bit less predictable in how well they perform when it's a noisy environment, picking out someone's voice talking in a noisy environment and making innovations when it comes to how they're designed is actually really labour intensive and it relies a lot on the work of volunteer cochlear implant users. And so I've got a story for you today starring uh, Dr. Greg Watkins, who's a former electrical engineer who uses cochlear implants himself. And he first noticed his hearing going about 15 years ago, got hearing aids. It continued to decline until he was profoundly deaf. If I stood next to a jet engine, the world was a silent place. Greg's hearing loss inspired him to go back to university and study biomedical engineering. And he ended up doing a PhD into cochlear implants. His studies gave him the impetus to put theory into practice and get the implants himself. But eventually they turn on the microphones and you hear the world around you. But it's not the world you used to know. Sounds are quite different and you need to learn to hear again. While hearing aids more or less amplify the sounds around you, cochlear implants work by directly stimulating the nerve in the inner ear with electrical impulses. And it does this in a way that mimics the stimulation that we'd usually get from sound. Audiologist Amanda Fullerton says how well those impulses translate into sounds varies a lot between individuals. We often say that we hear with our ears and we listen with our brain. The signal still has to leave the ear to get to the brain and the brain has to integrate that signal and interpret it. And so there could be various sources of variability between people from the level of the ear right up to the brain. In a quiet situation, many cochlear implant users can hear quite well but it's just when there are multiple people talking or there's background noise that there can be a problem. So while cochlear implants can be hugely useful, there's still room for improvement. Researchers are coming up with new ideas for improving the implants all the time, but testing them is time-consuming and labour-intensive. Volunteers with cochlear implants have to spend hours in quiet rooms listening to recorded sentences and repeating them back. Then researchers score these results and use them to draw conclusions about what is and isn't working. Greg Watkins has been one of these volunteers. That approach works, but it takes time. It's really tiring. I've done it myself. Mm. And uh, as a recipient, it's really hard work. Greg's engineer mind clicked into gear. Surely, he thought, there had to be a way to make this process better. And there was. Greg and his collaborators at the University of Sydney came up with an algorithm that helped predict the results of those tests for different people. They've developed a software tool that can be used by researchers to narrow down which approaches are worth pursuing, drastically cutting down on the number of hours that human volunteers are needed for. If we were able to predict how well someone would hear with a particular sound processing approach, then we'd be able to look at how well new ideas might work for that person. If we take the test results for a cochlear implant recipient in one condition, we're able to predict how well they will be able to understand speech in a range of other conditions. They've developed a software tool that can be used by researchers to narrow down which approaches are worth pursuing, drastically cutting down on the number of hours that human volunteers are needed for. Greg's tool is for researchers, not individuals, but it's designed to lead to a broader range of options when it comes to configuring a cochlear implant for a recipient. There are lots of different factors that play into how well a cochlear implant works. 
audiologist Amanda Fullerton says Greg's framework helps address an important one. Different people have different abilities to hear in noise and that isn't always predictable. So if there was an algorithm that could, I guess, be adjusted to an individual's ability to hear in noise, then that could presumably assist them in hearing better in a range of environments. Greg Watkins's research was published in the journal Ear and Hearing last month. He's hoping the algorithm gets picked up by industry and leads to improvements in cochlear implant technology. I'm exploring the technique further and I'm testing in more conditions and would love to explore the idea further with a manufacturer like Cochlear. We also really like to encourage people that have severe or profound hearing loss to consider whether cochlear implants might be something that can help them. For me, it's been life-changing. Greg Watkins is a biomedical engineer at the University of Sydney. So it's a great story, Tegan. I mean, the question I had was, can that algorithm be used for regular hearing aids or is it just with cochlear implants with all the leads? Because they're, they're quite complicated devices. I'll tell you what else was complicated was the research paper. So I can't tell you that, but um, really fascinating research that hopefully does translate into some innovations across the board. Yeah, because as anybody with a hearing aid will tell you or tells me, uh, the, the noise stuff is really difficult. And if you can get to the moon on, on, an, on a spaceship, how come you can't have the perfect hearing aid? But we'll follow that with interest. Um, so let's get to some of the questions that people and comments that people have sent into the health report. You go, Tegan. Yeah, I've got some really great ones for you today, Norman, including this one from Amanda, who was very um, interested to hear the, the piece that we ran yesterday, uh, last week Sorry, on the weird dentist experience that that um, listener had where they went to the dentist and it was about tooth grinding, but it ended up being sort of this um, strange kind of, it felt a bit woo. Anyway, Amanda... So just to explain, the, the, she had to hold out her arm with her palm upwards and then the dentist held the palm downwards and asked them to do something with their jaw and because they couldn't do it with their jaw, there was some sort of problem going on and yeah. it did sound bizarro. And the patient was sort of told that it was their fault that the energy wasn't flowing right that day. Yep. Anyway, Amanda says uh, that she was quite alarmed when when we told that story because the test that that dentist did and the use of the phrase energy, the phrase energy healing set off alarm bells for Amanda. Uh, and Amanda says it, it sounds a lot like applied kinesiology, um, which she calls a pseudoscience, which the government has found to be lacking in evidence of effectiveness. Uh, and she said that she points out that the Richard Saunders of the Australian Skeptics has done quite a bit of work illustrating the way applied kinesiology is used to fool people into thinking that something is wrong or that thinking that a bracelet will make them stronger or give them better balance. And I just wanted to sound the warning bell on that sort of practice. Mind you, a bracelet if it's bought in Tiffany's probably does make you feel better, but not, you know, not for, but for different reasons. Probably makes your wallet feel lighter. Yeah, that's right. What else have we got? Yeah, so Scott was calling... Um, so Scott has written in talking about tooth whitening and tongue cancer. The story that we had recently on tongue cancer made a chill go up Scott's spine. He'd recently been on a holiday and been convinced by his wife that he needed to get his teeth whitened. Uh, he, yeah, okay, he had yellow on his teeth. So his wife booked him into a beauty salon. They put a chemical on the teeth in a mouth guard and then pointed a blue light at his teeth and left him in the room for about 30 minutes while that light was pointed in his mouth. But after the treatment, 
He really had some strange symptoms. His tongue and inner cheek were tingling. The right side of his tongue was sore, blistered and cracked. And the inner part of his cheek was also sore. And he said he felt as if it was sunburned. And so even though his teeth is whitened, he's not going to go back for that again. And I think he's a bit worried now that perhaps he's put himself at risk of tongue cancer. I think one episode like that probably doesn't, but the uh, nobody really knows what's causing that increased risk of tongue cancer. But I must say, you know, what makes me wonder is, so it sounds as if that what Scott had was a bleach burn from the uh, from the whitening, maybe too strong a concentration, and it's, it's not good. But I must say, I do use the uh, whitening toothpaste um, that's now on the market, and you do wonder a little bit about what what it's doing inside your mouth, um, although it hasn't stopped me using it as, at, at this point, but... Um, it certainly makes it cheaper when you go to the dentist. They don't have to do much cleaning. But yeah. it's, it's an open question because when we change our behaviour and our purchasing behaviour, there's a famous phrase which I think we've mentioned before on the show. It says, whenever we change the way we live, new diseases arise. So t- if tongue cancer is coming out of the blue, there's something that we're doing, buying, using, which, is ch- which has changed it. And it's more than just smoking. In the old days, it would be smoking, smoking a pipe, that sort of thing was infamous for causing tongue cancer, but now it's something different and who knows what that is. Well, we know that the Health Report listeners are the smartest listeners. So if you know the answer, please email us healthreport at abc.net.au. Uh, but another another email here from Timothy, who's a retired, recently retired GP from Tamworth, who has a son in Melbourne with hay fever and was really interested in the story from last week on thunderstorm asthma, um, but asks several articles that have that Timothy's read seem to have a greater emphasis on people with a history of hay fever, but not asthma. And we didn't really go into a lot of detail in that in the segment last week. So are hay fevers sufferers without asthma at minimal risk or what? So look, it's a it's a really good question, and my understanding of thunderstorm asthma was slightly different from what we heard. Although Joe Douglas is an you know, excellent uh, expert in this area, is so there's some there's a couple of things that need to be said. First of all, is that if you have asthma and you've got allergic rhinitis, which is basically hay fever, your asthma is worse. So. And it's very hard to treat your asthma effectively until you've controlled the allergic rhinitis. So the correct thing to do, my understanding is that if you've got asthma and allergic rhinitis, is that you need one of these little steroid sprays for your nose to control the allergic rhinitis. And that helps in the asthma control. So I suspect it's not just hay fever by itself. It's, so, and remember, we're talking about here about a group of diseases which are called atopic diseases. And atopic diseases are atopic eczema, so eczema, so skin rash of a particular kind, um, allergic rhinitis and asthma. And I think that what happened with thunderstorm asthma, it was a combination. So the people who, who were most susceptible were people who had the combination of allergic rhinitis and asthma, which makes their asthma more vulnerable to a severe attack. And the message in thunderstorm with thunderstorm asthma also was that there were too many people in Melbourne and it's true throughout Australia, is there's a very high percentage of people, and I can't quote you the exact number, but it's, it's, it's high, of people who've got asthma, who, don't, who think they've got it treated properly, but they've got symptoms and they just live with the symptoms and they don't necessarily recognise them as asthma symptoms. So this is things like, um, it's cold in the morning and I get up and I cough and I wheeze. I'm coughing during the night and sometimes my, my sleep is interrupted by coughing. 
Um, and the, I get wheezing on exercise and sometimes I just get wheezy during the day and I'm using the blue puffer, my Ventolin puffer, I'm using it a lot. So I'm, if you're using your Ventolin puffer a couple of times a day, um, your asthma is not under control almost by definition. And what you need to be on is one of the preventer medications which settles down the actual allergy in your lungs and the inflammation. And so what there was in Melbourne, and it's true of other cities as well, and there's nothing special about Melbourne, is that there were too many people on a knife edge with their asthma and what it took was this deep inhalation of uh, you know, concentrated pollen which then tipped them over the edge. And if they had the combination of hay fever and asthma, they were much closer to the edge than otherwise. Message here, particularly in COVID times, is get your hay fever and get your asthma under control and don't use the blue puffer to do it. You use, have the blue puffer there for an emergency, which is what the, that story was about, but get to your GP and get on the brown puffers, the, the, the preventer medications, so that you're, as, you're not having to use your blue puffer as much under normal circumstances. And then you're going to have a bit more resilience in your lungs to a, an event such as a thunderstorm producing high volumes of pollen. Mm. And actually, there's another question from Kerry that touches on this as well, a question about how to protect against it. Kerry makes the point that almost every home at the moment has a supply of surgical or other filtering masks. Are they likely to be worth wearing at home during a thunderstorm? Would their filtering capacity be fine enough to reduce the amount of pollen that is entering the nose and mouth? Well, I think with a, a mask that's good enough to... Um, you, know, you know, So with COVID-19, you will reduce aerosol spread by 60 or 70%. Uh, and you get a very small protection against aerosols that come in. And whether or not that's enough for pollen, I mean, pollen particles are, are actually, I mean, I'm struggling at the moment just in terms of size, but it's possible you get a small effect in terms of that. An N95 mask properly fitted would, would definitely protect you. But the uh, an ordinary surgical mask, maybe get a little bit. It certainly wouldn't do any harm to put it on. Mm. A comment from Kay about gastric banding. Um, Kay saying that their niece had a gastric banding in a private hospital when she was 24 years old and she was not obese. Um, Kay's niece's motivation was largely cosmetic and Kay says surgery should be regulated in their clinical, uh, surgeons, sorry, should be regulated in their clinical decisions to conduct this procedure, which is a great point because there are lots of um, vitamin and mineral deficiencies that can go along with bariatric surgery. Usually though, the benefits outweigh the risks when you have someone who is severely obese. I mean, I, I mean, I'm dumbfounded that a, that a surgeon would do a gastric band on somebody who's 24 who was not obese. Um, and you know, one of the worries sometimes is in particularly in private hospitals when surgeons are operating by themselves and not in teams and their fellow surgeons are not necessarily looking over their shoulder as they do in public hospitals, you, you, you can get the odd rogue surgeon doing stuff that they wouldn't otherwise do. And in fact, on the health report a few years ago, I had the story in Melbourne of um, an oncologist, a cancer specialist, whose practice was entirely different in a private hospital from the Peter McCallum where he also practised. Yeah. And, and, and that's about peer review and being in an environment where people are looking over your shoulder. So it's not necessarily true that a pri private public hospital is better than a private hospital. Otherwise, it's, it's an environment, and it goes back to that story we just had on prostate cancer, is that you do better with when you're in teams and people are working in large groups 
and, and, and being held to account by your peers as much as by your patients in the system. Mm, and I suppose it just goes to that idea of multidisciplinary practices for bariatric surgery as the gold standard, and that if it's something that you're looking into, that's what you should be looking for. Yep, that's right. And I mean, a lot of surgeons now aren't doing gastric banding because it's a hassle. And mm. you know, it's, it's the, um, the more definitive operations, but yeah, you won't find many surgeons who are willing to go in and do a gastric sleeve on a young woman who's not obese. I mean, that's just, that's probably negligence. And one last comment from Francis saying, during last week's letters, we mentioned food intolerance food allergies and intolerances and mentioned some statistics around intolerance. And uh, Francis is saying, as far as I understand, we don't have any reliable test for food intolerances. So how, <laughs> where did our statement come from? Well, that story, I, where that information came from was with, with an interview I did with Nick Talley, who's um, a gastroenterologist. He's also um, a pro vice chancellor at Newcastle University, and he's editor in chief of the Medical Journal of Australia. But he spent his life looking at food intolerance and irritable bowel syndrome and so on. And what he's shown is that if you're looking at gluten insensitivity, gluten sensitivity, that celiac disease is a small, very small percentage of the population. You can diagnose it through antibody tests. It's true there are no good tests for food intolerance. But what he was saying was that true gluten gluten, it's not really an allergy, but true celiac disease, which is a hardcore gluten problem, is small. I think maybe about 3% of the population, if not less. But there are other people that they find who are intolerant to gluten and do have symptoms and do benefit when they go off gluten. And it's really only when you go off gluten and you find that benefit that you find out that uh, what the problem is, there's no good test for it. It's you, you, you suck it and see, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, thank you all for your questions and comments. We really value them and we truly do read every one of them. So if you've got something you want to say to us, email us at healthreport at abc.net.au. And we'll see you next week. You've been listening to RN's Health Report, the podcast version thereof. And we'll be back next week. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.